scripture reading this morning is found in uh, three chapters, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. So I am, uh, it is in our bulletin, so you can follow it there if you wish. And I invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my co- I, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Genesis 22, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God of our father Abraham, we are here this morning and we look up to you in need of you. Father, we thank you for the gift of each other. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word And Lord, we ask for your help now. We don't want to just be left to ourselves to read some words on a page that we can think about and argue about and walk away from. But Lord, we want you by your Holy Spirit to come and drive your word deep into our hearts so that it would bear fruit for your glory. So please do that, Lord. Only you can. So we acknowledge that we need you, and we ask for your blessing on us now. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and for his sake I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see many of you here. I know last last week, Many of you were away, and so it's, it's a joy to be back together again. As I hope you know, we are working our way through a series called You Are Here, where we are exploring the fact that the Bible is one story, that Jesus Christ is the main character of that story, and that we still have a part to play in this story today. 
And so in the first part of this series, which is going to take us up to the beginning of November, there's about one month left in this first, first leg of this, of this journey, we are going back through the Old Testament and are tracing out the story by, by following the series of covenants that God made with his people through, from the, before the beginning of time and up to the time of Christ. And so we have considered what God was doing, who he was in the beginning before there was anything else. Then we consider creation and God's covenant with Adam. And then, la- and then we considered the fall and, and everything that that meant. And then last week, we considered the story of Noah. So we saw that after Adam and Eve sinned, people descended into, the, the whole world descended into violence and sin so much so that God determined that he was going to wipe out all flesh and start over again. And he started over again with the one man and his family who found favor in his sight, which was Noah. And so we saw in the, in the flow of the story that Noah was really a second Adam. Through him, God started afresh. God started from scratch and, and gave humanity a fresh start. And Noah was a second Adam, father of the new humanity. But then we saw last week how majorly Noah let us down. It was barely after the flood was finished that Noah fell into public embarrassing sin and, and, and things just went downhill from there. And, and we saw that this is actually really important in the big story of the Bible. Noah's failures is, is, is crucial in understanding that the problem with the world is not out there somewhere. The problem with the world is in here. We are the problem. Human sin is the problem. Our, our hearts have the problem, are the problem. And, and a fresh start with the whole world being made new doesn't do anything to fix the reality in here that we need fixed, that we need changed. And so Noah's story, Noah's failure highlights the kind of, the kind of Adam that we really need, the kind of savior that we really need. So after the story of Noah, if we were to keep reading Genesis, what we would find right away is a big genealogy, Genesis chapter 10, sometimes called the Table of Nations. It shows how all the nations of the world descended from, from Noah and his three sons. The very next story after that is the Tower of Babel, where we see humans gathering together to do what? To commit the sin of Adam and Eve all over again. Right? The Tower of Babel has a lot of parallels to Eve's sin in the garden. Adam and Eve sin in the garden where they're disobeying God's command, right? God wanted them to fill the earth and instead they're grouping together. They're, they're refusing to spread out and they're challenging God's place in the universe, right? They want to try to reach up to the heavens themselves and they want to make a name for themselves. And it's, a, it's, it's an assault on God and, and, and who he is in his role. And so God responds with another act of judgment. God steps down, he confuses their languages and he causes his will to be followed, which is that they would disperse and spread out and fill the earth. So at this point in the story, if we were to be reading this story for the first time, at this point in the story, after the Tower of Babel, things don't look good. Things, things look terrible. And, and the only thing that's giving us hope is the promises of God. We, but by this point in the story, if we're following it, we should have lost all faith in humanity. All faith that a, a purely human person is going to be able to fix things and to set things right. 
And our only hope is the promises of God. Our only hope is, is God's covenant with Noah, that God is going to continue to uphold the earth in spite of human sin, that he will be gracious in, in preserving the seasons and, and not destroying all flesh, even though we're going to deserve it again. And, and there is also, not just as an aside, but majorly still on the books, God's promise to Eve, the promise that he gave for an offspring that will be born and, is going, and will crush the head of the serpent. And so it, with all of this in mind, if, if we're reading through the book of Genesis, after the Tower of Babel story, and we're kind of following along with what's going on, the very next thing we're going to encounter, Genesis chapter 11, is another genealogy. Now, now here's the thing. Those of you who have done what, I, what all of us should do, which is read through the Bible, all the way through, cover to cover, you get to these genealogies, and don't we just kind of think, oh, okay, well, you know, ancient record keeping, you know, and we, these, these don't seem all that important. And I want to maybe change, help change your mind here a little bit, because we read the story of the Tower of Babel, and there's another genealogy. A list of this person had this son, who had this son, who had this son. And it all begins with Noah's son, Shem. Right? He had three sons, and this picks one of his sons. Now here's what's interesting. We've already read a, a, a genealogy of Shem back in Genesis 10. We've already seen a general list of some of his major descendants and some of the things that happened. So here in Genesis chapter 11... The genealogy singles out Shem from among his three brothers, it singles him out and zooms in on him and records his offspring in detail. Do you think there's a reason for this? Do you think we're being told something, being pointed in a direction? So the genealogy tells us Shem fathered Arpachshad, who fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber, which is, by the way, where the, where the word Hebrew comes from. It comes from Eber and his descendants. Eber fathered Peleg, who fathered Reu, who fathered Sarug, who fathered Nahor, who fathered Terah, who fathered three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. It's Genesis eleven twenty six, And then the genealogy stops right there. And if we were reading Genesis for the first time or reading it with fresh eyes and we had God's promises ringing in our heads, his promise to Eve, his promise to, in a lesser extent, to Noah, but specifically his promise to Eve about an offspring. At this moment, the genealogy, it's, it's just brimming with drama. It's brimming with anticipation because why did it stop there? What's, what's coming? What's so special about these people? What's about to happen? And the question we should be asking is, is the promised one about to arrive? And so we keep reading Genesis eleven twenty seven and following. We find the words, now these are the generations of. Now, when you see those words in the book of Genesis, it shows that there's a new major section in the book of Genesis that's about to begin. So there's, there's this new section beginning. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. And then at the end of chapter 11, we get a bit of an introduction to these three brothers and who they married. And that's about it. There's some details there that, that, that are some, somewhat important. We could spend some time with them. But there's really nothing that prepares us for how important Abram soon to be known as Abraham, is going to be. There's nothing here that prepares us for what we read, just a few verses down, 
And we turn to chapter 12, verse 1, and we read those words that Wes just read for us. Out of the blue, no warning, no anticipation. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show to you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Where did that come from? What, like, what just happened? Who, who's Abram? Why did God pick him? And make these promises to him. What's, what's, what's going on here? This, this just seems like it comes out of the clear blue sky. God's actions here in, in picking this man and making these promises to him. They're sudden. They're unexpected. They're unexplained. Just like God's work of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? Out of the, the chaos of the dark waters with no warning, no introduction, no explanation, God begins something. He says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, things are happening. And this calling of Abraham is, is the same kind of thing. Out of the chaos of the, the post-Tower of Babel world, without any introduction, without any warning, God steps in and using only his what? His words. Using only his word, just like in the beginning, God begins a new work of creation. He tells Abram, I will make of you a great nation. Now, make, exact same word that's used over and over again in Genesis 1 to describe God's work in creating the world. And so this is why we're told almost nothing about Abram up to the point that God calls him. We're not told almost anything about what kind of a person he was, anything. Because that doesn't matter. This is not about Abram. This is not about how special he was that made God look his way. This is not about what he did to earn these promises because he didn't do anything to make God look his way. He didn't do anything to earn these promises. This is about God choosing in, choosing to step in and make something out of nothing. This is about God demonstrating his power by picking a nondescript 75-year-old man and a childless wife and making a great nation out of them. This is about a work of creation, of something out of nothing. Now, if, if, if it's true, if we're on the right track here, that with Abram, God is beginning a, a new work of creation, then that would suggest that Abram is similar to Adam, kind of like another Adam. And in fact, that's, that's exactly what the story suggests for us. There's, there's many parallels, and maybe you've never noticed this before, but there's many parallels in, in the story of, of, of Abram that would ask us to compare him to Adam and to understand that Abram, or for the soon-to-be Abraham, is in many ways another Adam, a new Adam. So we see it in the, just in the way in, in Genesis 12, verse 2. God says to him, I will bless you. When's the last time we've heard God say that to someone in, in the big story of the Bible, if we're following it along? When's the last time we've heard God say to someone, I will bless you? Or, or that we've even heard God say blessing to someone, that God blessed someone. It was Noah. And before that, who's, who's the person before Noah that we heard God bless? Adam. 
So, So when we see God speaking blessing to Abraham, that puts him in a very short list. Adam, Noah, Abraham of people that God speaks blessing to. And this connection gets even stronger. If you look in Genesis 17, which verse, verse 1 and 2 is there in your bulletin. This Genesis 17 is when God changes Abram's name to Abraham and confirms his covenant with him. And in verse 2, which is in your bulletin, he says, promises Abraham that he will multiply him greatly. And verse 6, which is not in your bulletin, Genesis 17 verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So do you hear those two words? Fruitful, multiply. When, when have we heard those words before? Spoken to Noah. And before that, when have we heard these words before? Spoken to Adam. So we see this, this grouping of language of blessing and of being fruitful and of being multiplied that are being spoken to Abraham that puts him as, as, as in, in a line with Adam and with Noah, as, as, a, as a father of a new humanity, a new Adam. And there's more. I, I'm going to stop there. But the story moves on. We see, for example, Abraham functioning as, as in the role of prophet and priest and king, just like Adam and just like Noah. Um, there, there's many pointers in the text. That, that we, you know, so if you're curious about more, we can chat about that later. But, but the, 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 the text of Genesis is suggesting to us, it's wanting us to see that Abraham is a new Adam, standing at the beginning of a new act of God's creation, that God is going to make a new humanity from him. God is beginning another fresh start. But this fresh start is going to be different than the last fresh start, which was Noah. Because with Noah, when God began that fresh start, God destroyed everybody else and started from scratch again. What we saw, though, is that in God's promise to Noah, he said that he's never going to do that again. So we know that as God is calling Abraham and promising to make him into a great nation, he's not going to make Abraham into a great nation so that he can destroy all the other nations. Just similar to what he did with Noah. God's not going to do that again. God is not going to destroy everybody else so that Abraham can become a great nation. In fact, the opposite is true. God is going to make Abraham into a great nation so that he can bless all of the other nations. And that's what we see in chapter, in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Listen to these words. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. So there's those words, those Adam and Noah words. I will bless you and make your name great so that, here's the reason. Here's, here's why God is going to bless Abraham. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then listen to these words. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is planning to bring blessing to the whole world through Abraham. So in in many ways, he is a new Adam, but the opposite of who Noah was, where God picked Noah and destroyed everybody else. No, God is picking Abraham so that he can bless everybody else. And I hope you see how massive of a turning point in the storyline of the Bible this is. 
This is such a crucial moment because up until this point, hasn't the whole sad story been a story of cursing? God's curse on the earth after Adam and Eve sinned. The curse on Cain, which we didn't look at in detail. God cursed Cain and his line. Then there's the, 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 the curse of the flood. And then the curse on Ham and, and Canaan. And then there's the judgment on Babel. Right? The, the, the whole story of, of humanity has just been a downward spiral. But now God picks a man and says, I will bless you and through you, I will bless the whole earth. In the biggest story ever told, what we need to understand is that this is the moment where the tide turns. This is the moment when the curse begins to be pushed back. This is the moment when God begins his work of reconciling the world to himself. This is the moment when God begins to repair the damage that's been caused by our sin. This moment is so huge and so important. This is, this is the turning of the tide. Let's keep going because God's promises to Abraham, we're not finished dealing with them yet. God has promised Abram, Abraham many offspring. He's promised to bless him. There's a further component in God's promises to Abraham, which is the promise of land. So there's a hint of that in chapter 12, verse 1, when God tells him to go to the land that he would show him. So, so God wasn't just going to bless Abraham and make him a mighty nation where he lived. He had to go into a land. And when Abraham arrives in that land, this is not in your bulletin, but Genesis 12, verse 7, God says, to your offspring, important word in Genesis there, to your offspring, I will give this land. And that promise gets repeated and confirmed multiple times to Abraham. You can go through it. God, God says this several more times to him. So do you ever wonder where the phrase promised land comes from? It comes from this. God promised that land of Canaan, that, that strip of land along the Mediterranean. God promised that land to Abraham and to his descendants. And that's why it's so often called the promised land. So it's really important to understand why God gave this piece of land to Abraham and his descendants, right? Because what, what did God want to do with Abraham? He wanted to make him a blessing to the nations. So a Abraham's got to get on the world stage somehow, right? And it, at that point in history, if you, if you look at the world, th there was really two major superpowers, or at least two major locations where there were superpowers. One was Egypt, right? Egypt massive power in the world at that day. And the other would have been Mesopotamia, which is over where Babylon would have been in that, that area of the world. And, and these two superpowers had trade and communication that were constantly flowing between them. And all of that trade and communication had to pass through a little strip of land about 30 miles wide in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the land of Canaan because right? everything else was desert, right? So, so the promised land, the, the land that God promised to Abraham was, was like the hub of, of the ancient world. Everything going from one side to the other had to, had to pass through. And so whoever occupied that land had access and information and the ability to, to be on the world stage of, of these major world superpowers. And so it makes sense. This is an ideal place for Abraham to be, to fulfill the promise that God gave him that he and his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. 
Now, what's really neat, we can't really get into it this morning, but I just, I just want to point you in this direction. There are clues throughout God's communication with Abraham and throughout the rest of Scripture. There's clues that God's promise to Abraham of, of land was not limited to the land of Canaan. So here's what I mean by that. God was not saying to Abraham, your descendants will inherit the land of Canaan and that's it. They don't get anything more. That's not what God's saying to him. The picture we get as we read through the Genesis narrative and through the rest of the Bible is that the land of Canaan was like the Garden of Eden. It was even, there's references to, as, they, as the exodus happens, as the children of Israel come out, that they viewed the promised land much like the Garden of Eden, which means that it was a starting place Right? We, we looked about that when we talked about that when we looked at, at creation and God's promises to God's words to Adam and Eve, that, that the Garden of Eden was a starting place, but that it was really to be pushed out and expanded to include the whole world. It wasn't the ending place. And we see that idea developed throughout the Old Testament, especially in the later prophets, uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, there's much there where it foretells that, that, that the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, was going to rule over the whole world, all of the Gentile nations. In other words, this entire planet. And this is the way that the New Testament really views this. So one of the clearest places we see this is Romans 4, chapter 13. So you can turn there if you want. It's just, just a short verse. I'll read it for us here. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about Abraham, describing him and talking about the kinds of uh, example of faith that he set. And sort of in a by the way, he's talking about in, in, cha in chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans, the promise to Abraham and his offspring, and listen to these words, that he would be heir of the world. Did you catch that? So Paul understands that in the scope of the big story of the Bible, Abram's offspring were going to rule not just over that particular piece of land, but from there, the whole world. And by the way, this is also the viewpoint of a young rabbi standing on a mountainside in Galilee in the first century who looked out over a group of people, Jews and Gentiles, and said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. We're getting ahead of ourselves. That's an idea we're going to come back to later on, later on in the series. But let's come back to Abraham and the promise from God of blessing, of offspring, of land. And what we've seen so far, the point we've made is that the storyline of the Bible really moves forward by a series of covenants. And so it shouldn't surprise us that with these promises made to Abraham, that God is going to confirm these promises in a covenant. In fact, God does that in two distinct stages. Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17 contain two stages of God confirming these promises to Abraham in a, in, a, in a strong and an unshakable covenant. And so we're just going to have time this morning to look at the first half of God's covenant with Abraham, which is in Genesis chapter 15. Now, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to read numbers of verses for us. This part is not in your bulletin. Um, it would have been tough for us to fit, you know, Genesis chapter 12 all the way up to Genesis chapter 22 in your bulletin. Uh, which is really what we would have needed to do this morning. But Genesis chapter 15, this is God confirming his promises to Abraham in a covenant. 
starting in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Oh man, even there, I don't have time to go into this. Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham was from, same spot in the world where the Tower of Babel was built. Exactly where they had been building, building the Tower of Babel. That's where God called him out of. That's, that's worth thinking about. There's so much here. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other, over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And then we'll move down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This chapter always seemed bizarre to me, but it's pointing us to a part of history that we're not familiar with. But what's going on here is a somewhat familiar covenant-making ceremony. That's why God doesn't have to tell Abram to to cut these animals in half, because Abram knows to do that, because this was a somewhat familiar ceremony in which two parties would make a covenant. And they would take these animals and they would kill them. And in this case, they cut them in half and they would walk between the halves of the animals. And by doing so, here's what they were saying. They were saying, may this happen to me should I break this covenant. Cut me in half, just like these animals, if I ever break my end of this covenant. So that's, that's the significance of this kind of a promise. And so typically what would happen in making a covenant like this, you take the animals, kill them, or cut them in half, and both parties would walk together between the animals. And they're each saying, I'm going to uphold my end of the covenant, and if I don't, I will accept the penalty of death. So do you notice some things that are different here? Do you notice that Abraham does not walk between the pieces? The only thing that does is the smoking fire pot and a, fl- and a blazing torch, which to the original readers of Genesis, that's a very clear picture of the presence of God. Just think about the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire moving through the desert, representing God's presence. There's no mistaking that this, the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch is representing God's presence. God alone passes between the pieces of the animal. And what this means is that God is taking on himself the responsibility of upholding this covenant. Listen to this. God is promising that he will die if he does not uphold his end of the covenant. But more than that, 
Because God alone passes between the pieces, God is promising that he will die if Abraham does not uphold Abraham's end of the covenant. That's huge, isn't it? Do you see where this is pointed? Do you see where this is going? It's not until Genesis chapter 17, after this ceremony, that God actually tells Abraham what his obligations in the covenant would be. Now, some of this is implied in the covenants of this day between a powerful person and a less powerful person. Some of it's just very clear. The less powerful person is going to be faithful to that powerful person. They are going to be true to them. And, and so some of that was, was, was clear, understood to Abraham. But then in Genesis chapter 17, and this part's in your bulletin, verses 1 and 2, God comes and tells Abraham what his obligations in the covenant are. When Abraham, Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now listen, this is Abram's covenant obligations. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. When we look throughout the rest of, of the Hebrew scriptures, this phrase, walk before me, has the sense of walking before someone as their representative, even their ambassador. So when God tells Abram, walk before me, think of like a, like a herald going on ahead of a king or something. He's saying, represent me to the world. Be my representative to the world. There's another connection between Abram and Adam, right? Because Adam was made in God's image to be his representative in the world. There's another connection. So the, these are Abram's, Abraham's obligations in this covenant. Represent me to the world and be blameless. Did Abraham do that? I mean, Abraham was an amazing man of faith. But if we look at his story honestly... I think we'd realize Abraham did not represent God to the nations perfectly. Abraham made decisions at times that misrepresented God. Abraham was not perfectly faithful to the Lord the way that he should have been. Abraham was not blameless. He didn't uphold his end of the covenant perfectly. And God tells him these specific commands of what he expects of him after God had already promised that he himself, God himself, would suffer the penalty of death should Abraham fail to do what God asked him to do. This is amazing. But at this point in the story, how is this even possible? How is God going to die for Abraham's sins. How is that even conceivable? This is one of the questions that does not get answered for at least another couple thousand years or thereabouts, just less than that. But I hope you see where this is headed. I hope you see where this is going. This ends up at the cross of Calvary. 
Now, there's, there's so much else in the story of Abraham that we could spend time on this morning. I mean, <laughs> I really struggled this week. How, how do you take Abraham and preach one sermon on him? There's so much we've had to leave out. We, we, we haven't spent a lot of time this morning on what we often focus on, which is Abraham's faith, his the incredible journey of faith God put him on, how God tested him again and again and again. And we haven't touched on one of the most important verses in the Bible, I think, Genesis 15, 6, which says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Right? There's the gospel, salvation by faith already in, in the story of Abraham. There's so much here that we could spend time on, but we're going to make one more stop this morning. One more stop, and that's jumping ahead to chapter 22, which is just in your bulletin. Now, here's what we need to understand. Genesis chapter 22 takes place about 40 years after Abraham left Haran. Okay, so 25 years until he got the son of the promise. And different estimates put Isaac at 13 or 16. Okay, so almost 40 years from when God first called him. And, and it's here where we read about Abraham's ultimate test of faith. God said, offer up your son to me. Man, how, how often do we kick and scream and complain when God asks us little sacrifices? And God asked Abraham to give up the son of the promise that he'd been waiting 40 years for. And he went and he was about to do it when God said, no, stop. Now I know that you will not hold anything back from me. God proved that God was more important to Abraham than his son. And it's after these things that God says these words to Abraham, which are printed in your bulletin. After Abraham has proved himself, the Lord says, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. There's echoes there. John 3, 16, it's just, there's so much. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Did you catch that word there that was used a few times? Offspring. God's used that word multiple times in, in talking to Abraham that he's going to give him many, many offspring. But there's something different here in this, in this chapter. And it starts in verse 20, sorry, in verse 17. Verse 17, we read that your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, not their enemies, but his enemies. There's a shift in the grammar here that this is representing. This word offspring, when we get to verse 17, is no longer talking about a whole group of people. It's talking about one person. Your one singular offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. In other words, he's going to rule over them. And this one person is in view when verse 18 says, in your offspring. Your one singular offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This promise that God gave Abraham that he's going to be a blessing to the nations is going to be fulfilled, is going to come through one person. 
The Apostle Paul makes this point, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. So track with the story here. This word offspring is so huge. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. Just to remind you, I've, I've mistakenly a few times in this series talked about God's promise to Eve and God's promise to Adam. You know what? Really, the promise of offspring was a promise to the serpent. I mean, it was in the hearing of Adam and Eve. But God promised the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He, singular, one offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we've seen, as we've tracked with the story, that all of the hope of humanity has been hanging on this one person, this one offspring that we're all waiting to be born. And that's why the genealogies are so important, as it traces the line of promise from Abraham, sorry, from Adam to Seth, and down to Noah, and through Shem, and finally to Abraham. And now God promises to Abraham that one singular offspring will come from him who will turn back the curse and bring blessings to all the nations of the earth. Put two and two together here. It's not hard to see. This is talking about the same person. The offspring that God is promising to Abraham is one and the same as the offspring that he promised in the presence of Adam and Eve. The serpent crusher and the bringer of blessing are one person. So do you see now how Abraham's story links up with the big picture the big story of scripture, there's a promise on the books that there is a son that is going to be born. And God tells Abraham, that son is going to come through you. And he's not just going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. So let's sum up what we've seen this morning. Genesis chapter 12, out of the blue, out of the wreckage of the Tower of Babel, God steps in and begins a work of new creation by choosing a man, turning him into a great nation, making him a great nation. God promised him descendants. God promised him land. Then God confirmed those promises in a covenant where God God said that he would take upon himself the penalty of death for Abraham's failures to keep the covenant. And then we saw that God's promises to Abraham all narrowed down to one specific individual, the long-promised offspring, the one we've been waiting for ever since Genesis chapter 3. So I hope you see how big these promises to Abraham are. This is the turning point in the story. This is where everything changes. This is where blessing begins to take over and to push back the curse. Every act of redemption, every work of salvation from this moment on is going to happen in fulfillment of these promises. This is so huge. And I hope you're also beginning to see, I hope you're beginning to see the big picture, that there really is a main character in the story of the Bible. There really is a main character. It's the offspring. And Abraham links up with that story because it's from him that this offspring is going to come. So as we end today, just know, I, I've really I've wrestled at so many points in, in these first weeks because I mean, we, we all know where this is going, but we need to let the story build. And it's not going to be till November that we really get to open up and, and be very clear about who this is all about and what's going on here. But just a sneak peek today. We know the offspring is Christ, the son of Abraham. 
And here's the incredible truth that I want to leave you with today. If you know Christ, you are one of those offspring that God promised to Abraham in terms of the many offspring. You are an heir of these promises. Galatians 3.14 says this, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Galatians 3.29 says this, listen please so carefully, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you want to know who the children of Abraham are? What does it say? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And that's you. We used to sing that song as kids. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. And then someone decided to start throwing in this thing about shaking arms and feet and kind of wrecks things. I don't know where that came from. But you, the first part is true. The first part is so true. If you know Christ, you are one of these many offspring that God promised to Abraham. You are a part of something huge. You are a part of a f- almost a 4,000-year-old covenant. So keep that in mind as you head out into your week. As you prepare to head out into the rough and tumble of daily life, whatever's ahead of you this week, whatever struggles, frustrations, temptations, sorrows, what would it change if you remembered in that moment, I am the heir of an almost 4,000-year-old promise. I am serving a God who has been keeping covenant with his people for four millennia. And if God has been faithful to keep his promises for all of these thousands of years, he is not about to stop today. I'm going to invite the team up. We're going to end this morning by singing the song, Standing on the Promises. Abraham stood on those promises. And they came true. And all of this shows us that we can have absolute confidence in standing on God's promises to us today. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us, please? Would you help us to see how big this is? Would you help us to see how big your covenant, your promises are? Would you help us, Lord, to have the perspective that comes from knowing we stand inside this covenant? We are children of the promise. Lord, would you let that perspective shape our minds when we are tempted to be pulled down to small and petty things and when we are tempted to doubt you. Would you help us, Lord, to stand on your promises just like Abraham did? Amen.